Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Today we have quite an interesting assembly of uh, things for you. We have uh, military psychedelics, brain implants, learning to talk like a child, and the California way to die. Also, some news bits about sexually transmitted diseases and, oh, excuse me, sexually transmitted infections. And if there's time, maybe a geek out or two on on immunology and cancer. Can't even almost talk about that as two different topics anymore because everything's connected. That might have to be one of the things I say in uh, my next promo for this program. Everything's connected, and I'll show you where some of those connections are on Ask Dr. Don. But first, a little bit about psychedelics and PTSD. Uh, we have a, discussed this uh, recently. Um, we talked about it on January 12th. There was a segment on psychedelics, and I will be kind of riffing off of that as a as a, uh, a bounce uh, trampoline from there, I should say, uh, talking about PTSD in the military. It affects millions of American military uh, personnel, both current and veterans. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, veterans of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom suffer from near epidemic levels of this with uh, nearly 30% of those veterans reporting PTSD syndrome or symptoms at some point in their lives. 6,000 suicides a year of veterans are attributed to complication of PTSD. We have an epidemic going on here. In fact, suicide is the second most common cause of death in uh, veterans who are under the age of 45. Well, psilocybin and MDNA and other chemical psychedelics are about to change all of this. Mostly we're going to be talking about psilocybin for the purposes of this discussion. But I want to point out that other agents such as MDMA and even ketamine are showing fantastic results with a single or a brief period of intense therapy. And the fact that it no longer, that this works is no longer in dispute. There's extensive high quality research in the United States and especially in Europe where the laws are less restrictive, even more data. The Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies or MAPS located here in the enlightened realm of Santa Cruz has researched the effects of MDMA for more than 30 years. And in its most recent study, which was a second phase three multi-site clinical trial, it confirmed the results of the first phase three trial. In that study, more than 86% of participants who received MDMA-assisted therapy experienced, quote, clinically meaningful improvement 18 weeks after starting the trial. And more than 71% of these participants who underwent MDMA therapy no longer met the diagnostic criteria for PTSD at the end of therapy. And that was compared to 46% of participants who had placebo plus therapy. So what's the answer? Therapy helps. This is an augmenter when we're talking MDMA. In the case of psilocybin, we may be talking about a one-shot deal when done properly. And there are things I don't like about uh, military people, but one thing I really like about military professionals is their pragmatism and their practicality. If something works and does the job and meets the mission, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll, We'll take a look at that. In fact, yeah, maybe we'll just do that. Often the military is way ahead of medicine, but it's also way ahead of politics. So good news here. Progress that is real and meaningful has just been announced at the federal level. There is a bill called the Defense 
uh, sorry, National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal 2024. And due to the uh, influence of Senator, uh, sorry, Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas, a veteran, uh, there is a amendment in there that actually got through that says that any member of the military diagnosed with either post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury can take part in a clinical study that uses authorized funds from the Pentagon. Uh, this was uh, signed into law uh, as p- this year. We actually signed it into law, and it all started out with Dan Crenshaw's work. It took two years to get uh, through the House, and it finally got into the final bill in the Senate. And it is a pivotal turn uh, to mental to revolutionize mental health care for our military. It really is going to bring them to the forefront and allow this therapy, I think, rapidly to become, let's say, validated, consolidated in terms of uh, the resources to administer it to a broad population in terms of best practices, strategies, scaling up the production of these agents and making it possible for us not just to treat the military, but also treat the general population. Uh, the VA will begin funding uh, psilocybin for veterans with PTSD this year. And let's talk a little bit about what that therapy looks like. It's really three phases. First, preparation, meeting with the psychologist and getting ready for the experience, uh, being having some sense of what to expect, and maybe seeing the room where they're going to be for their uh, voyage, which will take at least eight hours. And during that time, there are two professionals present in the room standing by because this is a guided voyage. This is something where professionals who know what they're doing are there to make sure things go well and don't get out of hand. The inter- then after that, and this is very critical, integration uh, sessions. This is critical because there is probably... Um, and as yet undefined what it is, the a, a limited period for neuroplasticity. In other words, a, pl- a limited time where you can rethink uh, and essentially reconnect the parts of your brain so that those boxes of trauma that have been stuffed in a closet somewhere can come out, be acknowledged, be grieved, and then be put in place as a past experience something that's over, something from which you gained knowledge, and also that you survived, and to reframe it not as failure, but as success, as survival, as growth, as getting beyond, no matter what happened. The legislation also includes a range of psychedelic substances with potential medical properties, not just uh, not just MDMA and psilocybin, as we said, but it all also does approve further research in ibogaine, which is an extract from a plant in Central Africa called iboga, and also 5-MeO-DMT. That's found locally in many plant species, and it's also secreted from the glands of the Colorado River toad and other qualified, quote, plant-based alternative therapies. If you're interested in learning more about this, uh, I recommend... You take a look at Michael Pollan's book from a few years back, How to Change Your Mind. He's an excellent uh, botanical journalist, I guess would be how I've classified him. My favorite from his books, the very first one, The Botany of Desire, about how how plants shape our behavior and how we shape the plants, and how plants manipulate us by giving us what we want so that we grow more of them. Hmm. Rather like dogs and cats, when you come to think about that, who said that there was no such thing as plant intelligence? Well, here we have an update on Neuralink for our next story. Neuralink, ah, yes, we had a mysterious oracular announcement on X that the first human had had the Neuralink device implanted in his brain. This is an FDA-approved trial, uh, but boy, details, mm, not finding them anywhere yet. Uh, 
why now? Why with so little information and no, not the standard way we publish research, Elon, just saying. But I'm asking you, how many people Googled uh, Neuralink IPO in the, in the last week? Probably a lot. And I think that, because he's pulled this sort of thing before, I think that may be the reason that we saw this, as I would term it, oracular announcement come out on X. That was posted on January 29th, by the way, if you want to go back and read it. So brain-computer interfaces, let's talk about those for a minute or two. They record and decode brain activity, and the goal is to allow a person who has a paralysis or ALS-controlled computer or a robotic arm or a wheelchair or a cell phone through thought alone. And uh, a couple couple years ago, we had the monkey with the neural link being able to use a robot arm to grab a banana and deliver it uh, to the monkey. So that was a while back, and now we have advanced up the evolutionary chain, so to speak, to advanced apes like ourselves. And while the scientific community is very excited about this, they're also really interested in the details. And the first thing we have to ask ourselves is safe and effective, like we do with drugs. Uh, Is it safe short-term? Is it effective long-term? Of course, long-term safety is also an issue, but we don't even know that it's safe short-term. And even though this has been tested in apes, it hasn't been tested in humans. And we really don't know anything beyond this tweet. We don't know. Uh, the only information in public for this is a study brochure inviting people to participate. But it doesn't, tell you, it doesn't say where this is being done and what the entities are. It's very general. And here's a criticism. The trial is not registered at clinicaltrials.gov. This is the online repository created by the NIH of the United States. And it's important that you register your trial. This is something I have ranted about on this program before. If a drug company is trying to validate that a drug is effective and the drug is not effective, if you did 20 trials and your standard of effectiveness was that it worked uh, 0.05, so a 1 in 20 chance that it was just a fluke, if you did 40 trials, you'd probably get that fluke. And if that was the trial that you revealed that you'd done and gave to the FDA and forgot about the 39 trials that showed the drug didn't work because you never registered those, well, then you'd be gaming the science and This would not be the first time it's happened. So recording and registering trials needs to be not just, it needs to be a requirement for publication, in my opinion, not just a best practices, but a requirement. What should happen is that the researchers register the trial and its protocol in advance as public information. And medical journals often require this as a condition of publication, but not all. And it is important, I think, for people to be able to see and comment on a trial, particularly from the standpoint of oversight and safety. There is another company, uh, BlackRot Neurotech, that makes uh, brain-computer interfaces. And we did a long segment over the summer. I tried to find the date, sorry, wasn't able to locate it to tell you what show to look up. But we talked about all of the different uh, companies that were working on that, and we did quite the deep dive probably a little too much detail, not going to revise that. But there's basically two ways to do this. You either have your brain uh, computer interface sit on the surface of the brain. Now, those are just a membrane on top of the, a membrane on top of the meninges. It's easy to remove, easy to insert. But these are recording signals across populations of neurons. They're not recording signals from individual neurons. And if we're really going to decode thought and get fine-tuning, we probably need this uh, surface stuff that uh, averaging could work, but uh, maybe we can decode complex cognitive processes using average signals, but at least the Neuralink and the Neurotech 
are actually putting electrodes into the brain. Now, the Neuralink's great advantage is it's fully implanted, so it's all into separate neurons, and it's wireless. And previously, people have had to be physically connected to a computer through a port in the skull, and that, of course, raises issues for a lot of problems, like, for example, infection. Neuralink will provide uh, 1,024 sites. That's a lot. It's a lot more than the competition. And so it's going to increase the bandwidth of the brain-machine communication. And uh, Neuralink's also uh, developing a robot to insert these into the brain so that they go in very precisely. But what about the immediate impact of this device? Well, here's what we here's what we expect at this point. No strokes, no bleeds, no vascular damage, and a long-term follow-up check to be sure that it remains safe. Now, Neuralink's going to follow people for five years, and they're also going to check the functionality twice a week and feedback the experience. That'll all be that'll all be captured and used. I think that's actually pretty decent in terms of an experimental design. And uh, let's see, there's a sort of poster child for this who is ha- now had the Black Rock Array implanted in his brain for 7.5 years, uh, paralyzed after breaking his neck in a diving accident. So he's been using this and he's fine. N of one, as we like to say in science, not definitive, but very, very interesting. And we do have a caller. So let's pick them up. And hello, this is Dr. Don. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I called a few uh, months ago about mu p rosine for lichen sclerosis that you were suggesting. Uh huh. And um, I was wondering, I did pick up the prescription for that, and in reading the directions, it said that it shouldn't be used in the vaginal or vulva area. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, what you're talking about is an off-label use. These are very common in medicine. And when a drug gets released, in the case of mucipressin or Bactroban, it was primarily released for skin infections with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, or MRSA, which started out 30 years ago as a hospital illness and climbed out from the hospital, got into the jails, from the jails it got into the gym, and from the gym it got into the community. So by Is that infantile? No. This is okay. uh, like a staph infection, which will give you a boil, except this particular oh. variety of staph aureus contains an enzyme that dissolves flesh. So it'll give you an ulcer, and the ulcers look just like a spider bite. So, and they, when they're very slow to heal. If this gets into your lungs or into your bloodstream, it's often lethal. So we developed a, so this was released a long time ago. At, it's already generic, so you know it's more than 17 years. And it was released and approved by the FDA for a specific purpose, right? But science marches on, and we're always trying FDA-approved drugs because we know they are safe and effective for problem number A, and or letter A. So we think, well, maybe it will work for problem letter B. And so we try it on letter B, and lo and behold, sometimes it works. And that's how we came to use mupirocin for uh, lichen sclerosis of the vulva. And that is common advice from dermatologists now. So it's, But it's still not FDA approved, so it's not in the package insert. Because in order to get the package insert changed, you actually have to go and do a study on women with lichen sclerosis, very expensive, not likely to happen on a drug that's already gone generic, and show in placebo-controlled double-blind fashion on several thousand people that it works, and then take that to the FDA and pay a hefty fee uh, in order to get the FDA to upgrade the indication. Now, you might think about something like Ozempic, right? Not 
very expensive drug, semaglutide. And semaglutide is still under patent protection. So it came out for diabetes, but then discovered it really helps people who are obese lose weight, and now discovered that, oh, yeah, and it actually reduces uh, cardiovascular risk quite substantially in obese people. So it's got some anti-inflammatory properties. So now we're like, wow, this thing has a lot of uses, but the only, but they went back and got the FDA approval for obesity because they had they stood to make a ton of money between now and the time this stuff goes off patent. So that's the that's the background pulling ba- behind the pulling back the curtain of how capitalism works in medicine. Mm-hmm. So that's that'll still be in there, but it's old news and it's not true. Uh, but it's not going to get taken out because that would require someone to spend a lot of money, and that's not likely to happen. Do you know what the uh, comparison is to using something like the mucosa? I can't pronounce the. I'll just say the M word and something like halo betasol mm-hmm. or uh, completely different mechanism. And so the halo betasol is a steroid, and mm-hmm. the problem with steroids, in my opinion, for this problem is that they thin skin. So you've already got an atrophy situation with thin, thin, irritated skin. So what you're going to do with long-term steroid use is that you will make the skin thinner, but you will, you will prevent, you will reduce the the ability for it to become irritated, but you will make it thinner and thinner and thinner. And so you're actually changing the body in a bad way. Uh, so but I'm not. The I, other I, one. The other it one change the M one. <laughs> no, it doesn't thin the skin. And the like with any topical antibiotic, I suppose there's some potential for having an allergic reaction, but it's going to be local and it's going to resemble, you know, a poison oak sort of thing, and you'll stop using it and it'll go away. So. I, you know, I can't, I'm not going to twist your arm to take it. I am going to tell you that I have a, a num. I don't have more than a half dozen patients who have this issue, but they're, they've all responded to it and done well. So that's only a oh, small, that's, that's, small that's number. But like I you said, you know what the length of duration of usage is? It tends to be that you have to keep using it and it, you stop after and it, and it starts to come back and then you use it again. And so you're, you're sort of re- arm wrestling with it. It isn't a, it isn't a definitive cure. All of my patients still have to go on and off of it. Usually I, they get better and they forget to use it and they don't use it. And then, you know, a month later, they're, they're like opening up the, the tube beginning, going, ah, oh, it's coming back like that. Thank you very much for your explanation. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. And thanks for the call. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So our next story is learn to talk like a child. Okay, there's been a lot of artificial intelligence discussions going around lately. Uh, artificial intelligence researchers decided to uh, create a machine learning model capable of learning words using footage captured by a toddler wearing a head cam. The, pu- the findings were published this week in Science, and basically do two things. They shed new light on the way children learn language, and they also inform researchers' efforts to build future machine learning models that learn more like humans do, rather than the sort of firehose approach. It's more of a flashlight approach. The drinking from the firehose versus you've got a flashlight and you pointed at something and that's what you see. Well, let's talk about how that works in a child, okay? So, Previously, we've estimated children begin acquiring their first words about six to nine months of age. We had an earlier, uh, about a month and a half ago, we had a segment upon how it's the rhythm that children first pick up on, and they may even start picking up on that in the womb. But learning their first words is usually around six to nine months. By their second birthday, the average kid has about 300 words in their vocabulary, Maybe not pronounced very well, but understood. The apparatus and the neurology to drive the motor structures of 
vocalization are still not fully developed. So researchers wanted to try to just play with this idea of giving an AI model a different way to learn. So to train the model, they relied on about 60 hours of video and audio that were pulled from a a lightweight head cam that was strapped to a child named Sam. Now, starting at about six months old and going through the second bir- his second birthday, Sam would wear this on and off. And over those 19 months, the camera collected about 600,000 video frames connected to more than 37,000 transcribed utterances from people nearby. The background chatter and the video frames pulled from the head cam provide a glimpse into how a child learns as it eats, plays, and experiences the world. So that once they had Sam's data, the researchers created a neural network model uh, and just gave it that information and to see if it would make sense of what Sam was seeing and hearing. The model was basically one module that analyzed single frames taken from the camera and another that focused on the transcribed speech directed towards Sam and no external data labeling, nothing to identify objects like you see a fire hydrant on the on the camera, but you don't have the words fire hydrant under identifying on it. it, it that would only happen if somebody said the word fire hydrant around Sam and the device connected the two. So this is how children learn through repetition, associating words with particular objects and visions when they occur at the same time. And there, there are many, many hilarious malapropes for when the kid did not quite get it right. Like, turn on the donzer. Donzer? What's that? Well, the lamp. Why, why are you calling the lamp the donzer? Well, the dawn's early light, right? So there are classic debates about what ingredients children learn and whether they need language-specific biases, whether there's innate knowledge, whether it's just association to get going. And it looks like just plain association and repetition is pretty much all you need. So they tested the model the same way that scientists test children, uh, and they would give it four images pulled from the training set and ask it to pick the one that matches a given word, like ball or tree. The model was successful about 61% of the time. That's about as good as any of the language AI models uh, are. And this is what was really cool. The model was able to correctly identify some images that weren't included in Sam's HeadCam data set, which suggests that it was able to learn from the data that it was trained on and then use that to make more generalized observations. So think about a child when Every four-legged animal is a doggy and then, or a cat. And then later on, those four-legged animals become sheep and goats and cows based on repetition and differentiation. But the idea that you could see one cat, an image of, figure out, okay, that's a cat, then see another cat that wasn't in the pictures of cats that you had seen and say, oh, yeah, that's a cat. That starts to be the level It tells us something about how AI works. It tells us also that it's representative learning so uh, that works for the AI, and that's all it takes really probably for children to acquire a vocabulary. So we've got the large language models. I don't need to talk about uh, chat GPT or BARD. Everybody's heard of them. But rather than using mounds of potentially copyrighted, uh, protected, or more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, biased inputs, because the data set that you use for your face recognition software is all white men, and then you wonder why it has trouble differentiating between black individuals. Well, hello. Um, The way humans crawl and stumble our way around the world may offer an alternative path towards not just recognizing language, but recognizing anything. Uh, this was pretty much a minimal amount of data. So they, the researchers were, in fact, surprised at how well their model did. And I think it's a super interesting thing to think about. How do we learn language? And certainly, repetition 
as one of my old professors at medical school used to say, is the mother of learning. Okay, our next story is about uh, a new California way of dying, or more accurately, not of dying, but of being buried. So California will begin allowing an alternative burial method known as human composting uh, as of 2027 under a bill that was just signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Assembly Bill 351 will create a state regulatory process. I might add, it's the assemblymen from Bell Gardens, which is where a whole bunch of cemeteries are in Southern California. Anyway, uh, it'll create a state regulatory process for, quoting, natural organic reduction, a method in which human remains naturally decompose over a 30 to 45-day period after being placed in a steel vessel and buried in wood chips, alfalfa, and other biodegradable materials. Composting, yes. Uh, The nutrient-dense soil created by the process can be then returned to the families or donated to conservation land. Supporters say it's eco-friendly and it's better than uh, cremation, which is an energy-intense process. And do you really want to go out adding to... uh, the global carbon, you want, you know, you want to increase your carbon credits enormously as the, your last act on earth. Doesn't seem like right. But in traditional burial, you've got chemicals that embalm bodies and a non-biodegradable coffin, so that isn't great either. So now we have uh, five states, California, Washington, Colorado, Oregon, and Vermont, This was Garcia's third attempt to approve this. It failed in 2020 and 2021. It'll save the equivalent of one metric ton of carbon from entering the environment for every body that goes through this process. The California Catholic Conference opposed the bill, feeling that it demeaned the sanctity of the human body, I guess. I don't agree, and I actually think that Uh, This is going to be very popular. Uh, By the way, it's a little cheaper than a casket funeral, but it's not cheap. It's uh, $5,000 to $7,000. It's going to cost more than cremation. But this soil that you turn into could be used on private land and uh, and it would be the same as distributing cremated remains. So very, very legitimately... uh, eco-friendly. So we'll stay tuned for more data there. In twenty, It's going to be a few years while various entities tool up to be able to offer this service, but uh, it's pretty, pretty cool and pretty exciting that uh, that law got passed. Sexually transmitted infections. I did promise you some news bits about STIs. Uh, earlier on. Well, they're going up among older adults. Seniors are getting it on, apparently. The incidence of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections among people 60 to 89 years is increasing, and it's increasing faster than the demographics of people in that age group is increasing. Uh, People are living longer than ever before, And so the number of uh, people over the age of 60 will double by 2050, but that still doesn't account for these numbers. They are going up faster than that. Uh, Turns out that HIV and sexually transmitted infections are equally prevalent in the sexually active older population. Who knew? And we've got a, a problem here because, well, Doctors often don't ask about sexuality or sexual health in older adults. Did you ever think about this? Because the average, you know, you're you're looking with elders now. Elders were young in the 1960s, and there was a whole lot of sexual activity going on throughout human history. But it was let's say, out of the closet and dancing naked in the street in the 1960s. And so most of the people that I know, which is many of my patients, who were there 
are pretty unshockable and very comfortable about talking about sex. And in fact, it is a completely legitimate question to be asking. Another thing that's happened to bring up the risk is, and bring up the numbers, is that sociologically, very few people in this age group use condoms or other protected measures, and they are less likely to get themselves tested unless they're symptomatic for sexually transmitted infections before entering into a new relationship. And then we have travel. In the last few decades, travel all over the world has become much more accessible. Did you ever think about how HIV got so prominent in so many places around the same time? You might want to uh, just go online and look up uh, Patient X for a very, very interesting story from the 70s about that. But anyway, my point here is we doctors need to clean up our act and start asking general sexual uh, questions as part of a regular checkup, particularly for the Medicare age population. Now, the Brits are doing something about this, and so my next story, also related, is about vending machines to help Brits self-test for sexually transmitted infections. They've, they've got vending machines for self-test kits. This will be for chlamydia and gonorrhea. It's a, a, a pilot report or a pilot project that was done in England and recently published in Sexually Transmitted Infections, a journal, peer-reviewed, of course. And they should be considered part of the digital offer of sexual health services. In other words, go online and order your free STI test. This was a pilot of 11 publicly available bending machines locating, located at train spots and uh, subway routes in Brighton, Hove, and four in Bristol. And the machines uh, dispensed rapid HIV tests and also self-sampling kits for other sexually transmitted infections. And during that time, they uh, you know, basically, about 11 months, about 2,500 uh, 2, people dispensed them, and about 200 people filled in questionnaires about their experience. Oh, by the way, folks, if somebody asks you to fill in a questionnaire, it's probably related to a study. And if, if it's something that you got given free, go ahead and you know answer their questions. Come on, give them a break. So the self-sample kits for uh, sexually transmitted infections like GC and gonorrhea were the most, uh, sorry, GC and chlamydia were among the most popular, 74% of the VENs. And most of them, 78%, were dispensed to 16 to 35-year-olds, which goes with what we were talking before. But more than two-thirds of the ones who responded had not tested in the past 12 months, and 60% had never tested for sexually transmitted diseases. This is confidential. It's instant access. comes out of a vending machine. It's very convenient. Don't have to go to a clinic. Nobody has to know what you're buying. And it's very difficult to get appointments in England. The cost of travel and also just the fact of talking about your sexuality to a stranger, those are all things that prevent people from getting tested. So why don't we make these cheap and over-the-counter? How would that be? Wouldn't that be a great idea? What about if, along with the fecal immunoglobulin tests, uh, Kaiser and other large uh, HMO comp uh, health uh, plans sent out STD testing maybe once every couple of years, uh, particularly in anyone who's getting contraceptives dispensed to them? That would be, uh, you would obviously be assuming that to be sexually active population. At least it would get you the women and from the standpoint of the damage that occurs from sexually transmitted infections that do not get caught because women are asymptomatic, it's a huge hit to fertility. And I would add that by when that woman gets a good job and has health insurance, you're paying for her infertility treatment because you didn't identify the chlamydia five, ten years ago and treat it before it fried her tubes. And now you're on the hook for a much bigger cost. So I think if we 
really thought this through from a cost benefit thing, even leaving out the human heartbreak of infertility and also the suffering along with that that occurs from uh, STIs being spread across the population. It just makes sense now that these tests are available to make them broadly available and screen the population. It's a no-brainer. But then again, no-brainer is exactly what we've got running things right now. No brains. So we're going into geek town. We're going to talk about geeky new biological agents, uh, molecules that are being designed, created, researched, and shown to do wonderful things in our bodies. The first one, new treatment to reverse inflammation and arterial blockages in rheumatoid arthritis. Now, before I go any further, I will tell you that the reason that they chose to do it in rheumatoid arthritis is you can get statistical statistical significance more easily if you have a cohort of people that are more likely to get the disease. And unfortunately, middle-aged people with rheumatoid arthritis are more likely to develop arterial blockages and have heart attacks or acute coronary syndrome. So this was a study done at Queen Mary University of London, and they found a molecule they're calling RVT4. And it does some very, very interesting things in atherosclerosis. It was first studied in mice, and in mice it showed that If you have increasing levels of this molecule in the body, it improves the ability of the macrophages, which are the body's part of the body's uh, defense mechanisms, to reduce local inflammation and actually remove blockages in blood vessels to actually reduce plaque, in other words. This was really, really interesting. And rheumatoid arthritis is very common. England affects about 1% of the population. That's about... uh, 10,000 people a year getting a new diagnosis. And besides the joint inflammation, they have vascular inflammation and their risk of heart disease and peripheral artery disease and stroke is about doubled. So the main blood vessel disease is atherosclerosis, which, you know, just for background, it's buildup of fatty material called plaque along the artery walls. And this buildup causes the arteries to harden and narrow. So you've got to pump that blood through a narrower pipe, and they can break and cause heart attacks and strokes, usually by causing the rapid formation of a clot across the crack in the rigid, in the rigid plaque, which is why aspirin is helpful for heart attacks and strokes. But what actually happens in, uh, in the artery is that the macrophages are doing their normal thing, which is going around and swallowing bacteria. They receive a signal, and they go to an area of injury, which is usually from high blood pressure or just at a curve where uh, I like to think about those parking structures in San Francisco, and you are driving up this endless spiral to get to a parking place, and you see all these black marks from people's bumpers on 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 the walls of the spiral. Well, if you think of that as a blood vessel, as things bump into the wall, they, ca- they can damage the wall, cause little gouges. Those gouges accumulate lipids. The macrophages go there, eat the lipids, but end up sometimes transforming into something called a foam cell and staying there and trapping the lipids and narrowing the vessel. What they were able to do with this, these 13 series revol- resolvents, particularly one of these molecules, Uh, was they were able to turn that around and restore the protective macrophage biological activity, take the foam cell and turn it back into a macrophage and effectively help have it eat the plaque and go away rather than sit there as kind of part of the body of the plaque, in, in effect, just accumulating more and more lipid there. So it was transformative. Interesting background on these resolvins. Resolvins are a molecule that is in the same kind of chemical pathway that the prostaglandins are. The core molecule that the that is made from the resolvins 
is actually the, the one found in flax. So flax seeds uh, have a type of omega-3 acid that, excuse me, a type of omega-6 acid that is made into these highly anti-inflammatory molecules. And it's just part of the process of inflammation. First, you turn it on, light a fire, but it's a controlled burn, friends. You don't want to let it get out of hand. So there's a delay, but when you turn on the genes to light the fire, you turn on the genes to put the fire out, but you give them a delay before they're activated. And that's the level of resolution and planning and coordination that occurs all over the body. It's, it's truly a miraculous thing. So more new molecules. And again, a lot of these new molecules are actually being created with the help of advanced AI techniques because you can well, effectively look at something and say, okay, what shapes would fit around that? Hey, chat GPT. Hey, Dolly, build me a shape that will deactivate that receptor without without deactivating anything else in the, in your library and those targeted molecules may or may not have exist evolutionary in nature and can be extracted and turned into either tinctures or supplements or dickered with a little bit to turn them into a patentable molecule the drug pro, the drug discovery process but now beyond that we can actually besides finding things that nature left lying around, we can actually say, order it up, make it just the way I want it, and lo and behold, that's what you get. So this Agent T797 is an unmodified, invariant, natural killer T-cell therapy. This therapy has the effect of rescuing exhausted T-cells. So in people with acute respiratory distress syndrome, people with very severe pulmonary injury, either from infection or from trauma. They're on high-pressure ventilation. They've got fluid in their lungs. They're very hard to manage, and they often get pneumonia. And the mortality rate is easily above 50% for a healthy young person who gets acute respiratory distress syndrome. This study looked at 20 mechanically ventilated people with severe ARDS secondary to COVID-19. And there were 20 patients in the trial. Uh, They were randomized. Of those, 14 of that 20 survived compared to the control group where 10 survived. And there was an 80% lower occurrence of bacterial pneumonia among those who received the highest doses of this. Uh, There were also five patients who were added to the trial who were on ECMO, which is where you take the blood out of the body, pump it through an artificial lung, and then pump it back in to uh, the body via a cannula. So essentially the lung part of heart-lung bypass that was pioneered for open-heart surgery and heart transplants. This is the first time it's been used, a therapy like this has been used in critically unwell patients, and the results were really amazing. The VV ECMO cohort was survived were 80% alive at 90 days, 60% at 120 days. This compares to an overall survival of 51% uh, with those who just got ECMO and did not get this agent. And here's really the wonderful thing. We, we can do personalized T-cell therapy, but because this is undifferentiated T-cell therapy, it does not it does not attract the attention of our immune system. It's invisible to our immune system. It's just as if it was our own cells. But it takes a long time to build these types of specialized T cells. Ordinarily, to CAR T cell therapy for cancer, you've got to take the blood out. You've got to grow. You've got to isolate the T cells. You've got to modify them genetically. You've got to grow up the ones that you got out of that modification that work and are doing what you want them to do, and then you've got to pump them back in. So you're talking four to six weeks to get the T-cells. And in something like this, an acute ventilator management patient, you just pull these off the shelf and insert them. They're made from healthy donor cells, and they're just extracted. They don't need to be modified or monitored or anything. They just need to be extracted 
techniques that only recently became available and made available to these critically ill patients. So it's a very small trial, but the results are really phenomenal. And if I'm going to criticize it scientifically, I would say I don't know about the... The thing I don't know about is I don't know about that randomization and whether they chose, whether how well they uh, didn't favor certain people with better prognoses. Let's see, we've got just a minute or two left. So let me tell you about a little medical news of the weird, something that uh, you can amaze your family with. Scientists have long assumed that... um, Insects cluster at lights because they mistake the artificial light for the moon and their navigation uh, gets mixed up. But researchers at Imperial College of London say, in fact, bugs don't fly toward the light on purpose. And instead, any bug that happens to fly by a nightlight gets trapped there because of the way that insects use light to orient themselves. Basically, they used high-speed cameras to look at moths and butterflies flying around light bulbs, and they noticed that when the insects flew over a light, they would turn upside down and fall. When they flew underneath one, they would begin looping up and over it. When they approached from the side, they would fall into an orbit. In either case, the insects were always trying to keep their back aimed towards the light, because that's how insects orient themselves. They keep their back to the sun, a quirk known as the dorsal light response, which helps them stay level as they fly. But the night light, it, the nighttime light is hijacking that response. So these findings could help urban planners find ways to light outdoor spaces that don't harm insects. But uh, keeping your back towards the light to keep your balance, there's almost a little political message there, I think. Oh, well. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.